0: The tension around the gaze is actually the plot of the film, so you could even see it as a manifesto around female gaze. Thinking about representation is, is also thinking about how you're going to build new rides, how you're going to build new sensations, new emotions. So that's what I want the viewer to experiment. So we are proposing this new experience, and you know we should always be excited and thinking about what's new. So I want to create new images. Of course, it's political, but it's also about cinema. Hello! Welcome to the Extra Credits Plus of what Celine Sciamma calls her Manifesto of the Female Gaze. I think this is a contemporary masterpiece. Yeah. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm Trey.
1: And I'm Kelsey.
0: What a movie!
1: I'm so excited for our conversation today. It's
0: quite the film. Yeah. Celine Sciamma said she wanted to make a counterculture romance, a film exploring an echo of a love, a melancholic romance that is over while it's happening... And a fleeting memory being retold to the audience. She is quite away with words. She
1: is a poet. Wild, yeah. She's one of the best filmmakers to watch give interviews because she's not even like recycling. You know what sure. you would normally hear on a press tour of like, here's what this means. She's always throwing out like banger quotes. Yeah, like she. <laughs> I have one that I wrote down. She said, "It's not in her
0: native language either, which is yeah. wild." Yeah,
1: she said for a portrait of a lady on fire that. She wanted to capture the highest emotional journey possible just to tell a story about what it's like to grab someone's hand. Wow. That sounds
0: like a through line of her work because that feels like Petite Maman or Water Lilies. You can see that in a lot of her films.
1: Yeah. There's something so interesting about her filmography in that she's focusing on very small moments, Mm -hmm. but they feel really big. And that is, I think, attributed both to her writing, but also the way that she's able to capture this tension um, of what someone is going through. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't, I really, honestly, I've, I've tried to really study it as we've been watching (laughs) her filmography just to see how she does this. It feels like, uh, I I just uh, genuinely don't understand how she captures this kind of like tension that is so felt when we're really just watching someone go through life. It should feel more like, muted mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. more lingering like and,
0: vignettes yeah of someone's life yeah and there Instead, are other this is a lot more dense
1: filmmakers yeah who are, are really good at that too and i yeah. just love being in a world but she's able to to capture like you almost feel what the character's thinking yes and I, and yeah that is I feel it's like so rare. difficult to do because I don't see it in a lot of other people's work unless it's in small moments.
0: She gives intimacy a grand scope, yeah. you know, thematically, yeah. that's so layered in um, just looks and gazes, which, you know, uh, the female gaze, the male gaze like that, you know, that kind of dynamic is a big part of the conversation of this film and why right, she wanted she's to make it in the first place
1: to that. in a lot of her movies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Responding to traditional narrative storytelling and then trying to unpack why that storytelling was created and who it actually benefits. And it is not woman. And so trying to then reframe stories around a female gaze, which is why she believes this is like her manifesto, her like yeah. polemic on that idea. And it's a very politically radical movie in that way, while also being like a, uh, a beautiful romance that makes desire feel cinematic and she wanted to make empowering woman cinematic and she wanted to reframe romance outside of patriarchy. And I think she succeeds on so many fronts, which makes this movie such in that kind of elite tier, you know, of the 2010s going into the 2020s with the moonlight with Parasite, like in that that group of movies that deserves to be in the top 100 films of this century or even in the top 100 films of all time. Yeah. Um, so it's a beautiful film. It's doing a lot. It's also a very subversive movie, which I don't think it gets a lot of credit for, but it's like subverting conventional storytelling, subverting conventional genre. I think it's a masterpiece. I'm really excited that our patrons are just voting for the most incredible movies <laughs> yeah. we ever... When we make a list of movies for people to vote for, like for our Valentine's Day episode, which we did for February... I'm just expecting them to pick, you know, in the mood for love or about time, these incredible films that we can unpack that are in different genres across different eras and cultures Mm. before sunrise got a ton of votes. But this movie is like layered, you know, with subtext underneath the sub. There's a sub subtext, you know, in this movie. (laughs) Uh, Everything's a metaphor. Everything's symbolic. Yeah. Um, Which makes it, you know, the conversation really exciting, but also really challenging. So we did so much prep in in preparation for this. We watched all of her movies, which was a great time. And I did feel like I was studying cinema. Like I felt like I was in class while watching her films, uh, which is very rare, while also like preparing for Dune because we're seeing <laughs> yeah. dune part two tomorrow night and it's Denis Villeneuve month.
1: yeah um so we did blade runner on the patreon yes uh that was our longest episode ever
0: over three and a half hours
1: yeah yeah
0: and it kind of flew by like by the time we had like hit the three hour mark i was like oh yeah we still have like an hour left of the movie to talk about we should yeah. probably <laughs> get to all this It's just such a dense text and we also talked about like the alien and blade runner yeah. informal franchise in that episode quite it probably a lot.
1: flew by we just loved obviously talking about the the informal connections of that universe, like yes, yeah. replicants. Uh. Sure, yeah, the
0: history <laughs> of that, like literally the history of replicants. I feel like we wrote a book on that episode. Uh, we're gonna be recording our Dune episode for the Patreon probably tomorrow morning. We're hoping yeah. to record it before we see Dune part two. I'm planning on our Dune Patreon episode to be our most chaotic episode maybe we've ever recorded because oh, yeah. we both know nothing about Dune yeah. outside of being coming like recently committed spice heads. Yeah. Uh, which is new for us because when we saw Dune, and we saw dune in one of the biggest IMAXs in in the country. Yeah. Uh, when it which came out we didn't out a few realize years ago. that
1: we that that was the movie theater we were going to and when we moved away from that movie theater we it were was, like what
0: <laughs> to shot the theater out it's the Udvar-Hazy Smithsonian IMAX yeah. which is just the um, the biggest IMAX I've ever seen again one of the biggest in the country. That's where I fell in love with film. I saw The Dark Knight in 2008 yeah. at that IMAX. You know, we saw Interstellar at that IMAX, we saw Dune at that IMAX. Walking out of Dune with James we were like okay, is this like an Anakin Skywalker, like Messiah film? Like, is this about fundamentalism? Is this about like empire building? Is this a game of Thrones meets Star Wars? And then we don't, we weren't familiar like with Frank Herbert's novels outside of them inspiring science fiction so deeply. And so tomorrow is just going to be like a lot of us asking questions to our, each other, like to the (laughs) listeners to like Googling live on the podcast. I'm sure, which we usually don't do. We come with like you know, a hundred pages of notes and are like trying to be prepared for every conversation, you know, like, but Dune is so epic. Yeah. I'm honestly just excited to talk about like our predictions for part two. Well,
1: yeah, I think that it'll be an interesting episode because like you said, we prep so much for every, you know, movie that we do. And we really like to see like, what is the filmmaker interested in? Luckily, like we really know Denise filmography. So we kind of know what he's interested in and you know, he made Blade Runner, and like Dune is definitely inspired in, in terms of like the visual cinematic language with that.
0: Yes, for but sure. But
1: we don't know the Dune lore, and we know that like when Trey was just saying Star Wars and everything, like Dune is the the text that people point to and of like creating. A lot of those narratives, like the Anakin, yeah, de- deconstructing the
0: hero narrative or the Messiah, complex. the Jedi, right? Like yeah. and
1: the Bene Gesserit. So like we understand that, but we don't know the Dune lore. So like I don't want to read everything about Dune because I'm going to spoil things for myself. And then yeah. why would I? Why would I do that? So I I feel like it, you know sometimes when I'm listening to to podcasts like on my own, um, just for for fun, like yeah. listening to what people think about movies, I actually like hearing. What someone who has never seen the movie before thinks about it. Yeah, you know, like well,
0: that'll definitely certainly be our <laughs> well, our episode on Dune. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so you're gonna like listening back to our episode. <laughs>
1: but I, I guess like we'll preface it on the Dune Pod. But I, you know, we'll probably be asking questions that people already think is an obvious answer. But yeah, I I think it's been really fun. I I don't think there's a lot of new like narrative lore that we often get to to go Explore. into. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, like... It's we, funny because
0: it's like not new. We just didn't have yeah. like, access to it. <laughs> like, we didn't read the novels, so...
1: Yeah, although I did... I had an Audible credit uh, expiring and I did get the Dune audiobook, but right now <laughs> wow. I'm just reading so much with my classes. I like can't fit it in. That's
0: the one sponsor I think you would actually like to have on the show would be Audible. Because <laughs> you are constantly... You're, you're like, I read three books this week. I'm like, when? And you're like, I listened to three books.
1: Yeah, well, I'm assigned... Like, yeah,
0: that's true. PhD, <laughs> like, yeah.
1: So many books a week, um, but yeah, I I like to listen to things. That's my. I mean, uh, we have a podcast. I like I like the audible medium.
0: I can't audio do it. medium. <laughs> I'm a big annotator. Like my books are filled. Like I mean, I only do nonfiction. I don't read fiction really because I watch movies. So all my yeah, fiction is, like, time is fiction. spent in film. Uh, but when I read nonfiction, which is quite often, like I'll annotate, highlight post-it note like it's (laughs) it's like crazy how much time it takes me to get through like a 300 page nonfiction about an era maybe that's why
1: I don't like reading like physical um texts because then I'm like oh now I have to google this historical event I have to google this word yeah like and then it takes me hours to finish five pages I'd rather just listen to something and keep keep going yeah you know yeah um that's that's just my my way to get through it.
0: Anyways, we'll talk more <laughs> about this tomorrow on our Dune episode. So if you like what you hear, <laughs> make sure to subscribe to the Patreon. Uh, we have some of the greatest listeners Maybe on we can
1: do like a Dune audiobook. Or, or, or not audiobook, but a book club like this summer or something you, when I have time to read it. A
0: book club. Ugh,
1: I don't know. No.
0: I want to make a film club. Like that's what this is, you know? Okay. Like I think book club would be fun like when we get to it. We got to give ourselves like a certain quota. We got to meet for listeners and then we'll do a book club eventually yeah stick to the movies for right now yeah in terms of unpacking conventional narratives <laughs> and mythologies like dune that's not unlike what Celine siama's goal was in portrait of a lady on fire it's True. yeah good transition there yeah. so i want to start today's episode by saying that Celine siama is now one of my favorite filmmakers i didn't want to come on the podcast and say that because it seems like i'm trying to like jump on the train really late, but that's exactly what I'm doing. I don't care, like, make room for me. I watched all five of her movies, (laughs) you know, some for the first time over the past two weeks, multiple times. And I think she's in Rare Company where she's like an obvious auteur who's only made five films, you know? And she didn't do a lot of short films before her career started. Like, I think Mm. her her thesis script coming out of film school was Water Lilies. So she went straight to making that movie in her 20s. And it's an incredible first feature. So I'm really glad that we get to discuss how incredible and talented she is, and also the collaborators on Portrait of Lady on Fire, from the performers to the DP, like helping cultivate one of the most mesmerizing movies I've ever seen, one of the best sound designs I've ever heard. Uh, there's gonna be a lot to talk about. This is her masterwork, and I think we can talk about the fact that this is a period romance that is also subverting the period romance, and, right? and maybe discussing why the period romance is often rooted in a form of classism that is never like revealed or unpacked mm-hmm. in those movies. And also how this film is exploring... It's kind of a contemporary movie. It's in pre-revolution France, so it's 250, 300 years ago, but it's talking about contemporary ideas. And this is Celine Sciamma's, like historical project. And she calls it her manifesto. This is a polemic film, a very radically political movie, because she's saying, hey, woman's liberation and woman's oppression happens in cycles. This has happened all throughout history. And that's what I'm trying to tell through Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And so she you know, uses the audiences, you know, she trusts the audience's intelligence, not just emotionally, but just like their literary intelligence, like analyzing the film. And so she uses this idea of the movie trying to deal in subjects and muses as a way to interrogate how audiences sometimes can objectify films or people, characters in films and how women are usually portrayed as these passive figures in art and have been actually historically very active figures in history and have been then erased from history. Right. And I think she does all of this in this under two hour movie while deconstructing like mythologies, like Greek myths, which is a big part of this film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's in all of her movies. She's interested in looking at constructs and the constraints that her characters are facing in their like everyday lives, uh in their relationships, mm-hmm. and she's also interested in the like idea of the like politics of desire in yes. all of her movies. So we can talk about it her filmography, but I think you know Water Lilies is very much in conversation with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and Absolutely. you know Adele Hanel stars in both of these movies. But yeah, I mean you're right; it's definitely. A a movie that has a lot on its mind. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, and also I I think in terms of like the Greek myth that you're talking about and the, the kind of like erasure of women in storytelling and in art. I really want to talk about uh, the the Greek myth in this movie because that was probably my most difficult thing to grasp or to. To to kind of think about like what is she trying to say here? Mm-hmm. Um, as I was prepping for this conversation, because I was listening to you know other podcasts reading articles like what does the Greek myth mean in Portrait of a Lady on Fire? The
0: Orpheus and, and Eurydice one. Yeah, yeah, and I've
1: seen a lot of people understandably say like I'm just gonna treat this as a conversation that they're having in the movie about desire, about romance, and I'll just Choice. leave it at that. Right. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a bonding moment for the characters. Um, and then I've seen other people talk about it in, in terms of, like, what it means for the characters towards the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. I actually think I have a reading that I, I haven't seen, really, but kind of ha- have, like, put together through watching Celine Siyama talk about the movie. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, again, like, watching it so many times in preparation for this episode. So I just want to hear, like, during our conversation today, not right now, but what you think about the myth. Because I actually think that in terms of the script it is really intentional and in like purposefully kind of uh, rooted as a what the story that she's telling it's not just like a small piece or a small scene. Yeah. So i definitely want to hear your thoughts on that. But um in just in terms of like the art commentary that you're talking about also i think it's so smart to have this kind of like artist and who gets to decide uh, the conventions of art? Yeah, code, and the who codes is respected art. in art? Yeah, I I just love the that kind of commentary going on in the movie itself, um, and and having this portrait be a a larger metaphor about the basically film, um, the film industry.
0: Yeah, I mean that's. So there's lots of layers, right? I feel like there's sub sub subtext in yeah. some moments, like, and I'm not, you know, joking about that, or I don't think it's that pretentious because the movie is so beautiful to watch, and so you never. I feel like I am suspending disbelief with all the subtext that's going on because there's metaphors everywhere, there's symbolism everywhere. I think what I'm most excited to talk about today everything you just said, yes, but also just this like memorable tension between Marianne and Eloise and like mm-hmm. their dynamic going from this traditional relationship between artist and object and how it evolves into this mutual respect and admiration of where they both treat each other like fully realized individuals by the end of the film and Marianne like specifically dropping her socialized male gaze that her father had taught her to become an artist in the first yeah. place, those codes that you're talking about. And her and Eloise both becoming subjects of one another's lives and Siama weaving the subtext of the whole entire film through their relationship. Because this whole entire film, going back to your Greek myth thing, is kind of a retelling of that Greek myth. And we're definitely going to talk about whether that's effective or not. I do bump on a few scenes in this movie. Not really, I, I don't think, totally fit in the whole the the narrative. Um, and I still think it's a masterpiece, but it's got like two flaws for me that I really want to talk about. The myth being one of them, just my different interpretations of that. So I'm curious to hear what you think if you feel similarly. I I do. Okay. I
1: wonder if we think that like probably similar, similar things. Yeah. I mean, we watch the same interview, so yeah. Maybe we're like you know taking similar pieces of what Celine Siam is saying about the myth's interpretation on this story. Right. So I do think I bump on that a little bit because I yeah yeah you can get into I, we'll it. get into that um but in
0: terms of the larger scope yeah like in terms of reclaiming woman in history which is the purpose of the film that works which is that, why this movie yeah. is so radical. and like kind
1: of you're saying this effective. idea of seeing women as like object versus subject yeah that is really successful and yeah and i, I love like their relationship as that is not only visually, you know, um, told to us, but also through their their language and their conversations together as like characters.
0: Yeah. So there's so much going on in the movie. It's timeless in that way. And I think she was able to make a satisfying period romance while also like totally subverting that expectation. So it's radical in its politics, I think, because of what it's saying about the cyclical nature of liberation versus oppression. And because I loved it so much on rewatch and watched it so many times and was finding something new each time. I was yeah. like, let's watch all of her films. Yeah, so we watched all five of her movies over the past two weeks and what a like great experience. Each one was special in its own right. Each one has like an exacting tone, a rhythmic style. There is this through line of atmosphere building and t- tension building through the smallest of moments like you were saying at the top. And there's like this, I've come to describe it as like this warm ambiance that she creates and her collaborators mm-hmm. create, but it feels like an angry warmth. And yeah. I don't mean like angry in like sexist coded language. I no, mean it yeah. more like in this non-conformist kind of pissed off attitude that is like a political angst running through each one of her scripts because she writes her movies. And you can feel it even in the technical filmmaking. It seems like everybody's on the same page socially and politically, which is rare when it yeah. comes to these movie kind of movies.
1: You know, actually I I never thought of the word anger, but you're right. There's like a healthy anger in her movies. And again, yeah. she is exploring like constructs and and Kind of like how even people very close to characters um are like we'll talk about in this movie, right? Like the mom's relationship to Eloise mm. and uh, and those kind of like expectations that it's not just so simple as like the mom making a choice for her and being this villainous character.
0: Sure. It's complicated. It's like the yeah. mom and tomboy. Like there's yeah. there's complex, nuanced, like flawed, but like loving characters. And yeah. that makes it very kind of it makes it complicated.
1: Yeah. So should we talk about her filmography a little bit?
0: I think we should do it now and not during the movie. Cause yeah. for this film, there's so much to beca- talk about because yeah. it's subtitles and it is our, I think it's our first foreign language film we've covered on Patreon. Um, cause I know we've done some on the main feed, like worst person true, in the world yeah. and, and a few others. But, uh, so when we do these films, like we do live commentaries on the Patreon. So we're going to be watching it while talking about it. So we'll probably go scene by scene for the first time in a while. Cause Blade Runner, we were all over the place cause yeah. such massive war. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's talk about her filmography right now. So, I don't think she's made any average movie. Like each one of her movies is really good in its mm-hmm. own right. And each one felt singular, like between water lilies, tomboy girlhood portrait of a lady on fire. Most recently with petite Maman, I enjoyed watching for the first time or revisiting all of these. And I was kind of surprised by one in particular. I think by far her best movie is portrait of a lady on fire, but I did find myself like loving another one, but I want to ask you first because you're such a petite Maman head. And I feel like we were sort of both by the way we're talking right now, kind of indoctrinated by her cinema. Yeah. Uh, And like we watched so many interviews and we love listening to her speak about her films now transparent and straightforward. She is about her motivations, but I know you're part of the uh, petite Maman hive. Yeah. So is that one still like your favorite after watching all five of these? Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that there are other ones that I really also think are, are just so great. And I haven't seen movies like them um, because I feel like a lot of other filmmakers or studios would be like, the story's too small. Do you know what I mean? Okay. But what she's able to do with a small story and, and like you said, like make it so big and make it so felt um, is just so impressive. And she is like, uh, uh, it's a masterclass like, to, to watch her movies. But yeah. yes, I am still, I think Petite Maman is my number one from her. And I know that's a very like personal favorite because I still, like you said, recognize Portrait of a Lady on Fire as her best movie. Uh, I mean, it looks amazing. Again, everything looks like a painting in Portrait of a Lady on Fire on purpose. And we'll talk about the scenes and the casting, mm-hmm. but Patima Mon for me, I just love the, the quietness uh, of the movie. You know, Celine Siama is very into this dialogue of like inventing uh, she yes, she yeah. has that dialogue in Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> she's and, a great
0: self marketer. Like, she's, yeah. she knows how to to sell her films.
1: Yeah, and the idea of like inventing a, a feeling and generationally, like what that means and the tension of of that mm-hmm. in petite maman and having it just be so quiet and beautiful and this kind of meditation on your relationship to your parents. Um, Mm -hmm. and their relationship to their parents, I think is just so gorgeous and it's like sad, obviously, but there's something like hopeful about it. I don't know. Or something like it just, it feels like real. Like you feel like I, like there's a, a little bit more understanding, like with the characters after, after the movie. Um, yeah. I I don't know. I just love it. Um, I think it like looks great like all her other movies and it's the least tension-filled even though I enjoy that about her filmography overall.
0: Though the first time we watched it, I was like, is this a horror film 30 minutes in?
1: Yeah. Just because,
0: (laughs) I mean, that might have been, I don't even think I realized like Celine Sciamma had directed Portrait of Lady on Fire before I watched Petite Maman. Yeah. So I remember being like, who who made this movie? Well, you I, we went I in mean, blind. I
1: think you're right to say that like when we have watched Selene Siyama's movies, you're like, are there like, are there elements of this that feel like a horror She's movie? She's got, got a great feel and for I suspense. Think, and attention. I think that is so true, except that you're feeling like the kind of, you know, rules or expectations yeah. of the world are the horrific elements instead of like a big bad or someone, you know, um, th- who's yeah. out to get someone like, uh, you know, like a, in a traditional horror movie, like a slasher film. So I think that you're right to say like her movies do feel like horror movies. I think Petit Maman though, um, even though I could see that, that those pieces of it, cause there, there are definitely surreal elements. I think it's her sweetest movie and, and her most
0: meditative for sure. Yeah. yeah. It,
1: it's the most quiet. I know it's not a lot of people's favorite because of that, but I just also love like those idea, those like generational stories that came out the same year as Gaspar Noe's Vortex. I feel like they're oh, kind wow. of uh, different sides of that same conversation.
0: Yeah, wow. Um,
1: and I feel like that might be more like after sun for you. I
0: mean, okay, so I was gonna say, I didn't connect to Petite Maman emotionally, I was just kind of floored by it technically. And in its screenplay and yeah. being a 70 minute film, which is just something I think Americans suck at. Like we don't try that enough. We're so maximalist here and sensationalist. Yeah. And all of our films have to be like over two and a half, three hours. And I love three hour movies. Like give me more, please. But like sometimes a 70 minute tight, clear, concise movie can feel like a short story come alive cinematically. And yeah. that's just so difficult, arguably more challenging to it than a three and a half hour epic. And or having like similar challenges. Yeah, I showed my
1: students Playground. Um, oh which, my God. And they, you know, were like, whoa, I don't know if I've ever seen a movie. It's a good like that. Playground yeah. came out a
0: couple years ago. It's an excellent film. Uh, probably one of the top five, top 10 movies of the 2020s so far. But yeah, I was going to say Petit Maman. The first time I watched it, I was like, okay, this is like a, a really impressive, understated cinematic experience that I'm having with this film. Yeah. It's an incredibly intimate mystery. Um, and I'm going to call it a mystery. I think it's one of her only mysteries if you're going yeah,
1: you know, to attach genre right. to
0: it. And it's got great performances from the twins in it. I won't say much more about that, not to spoil it. Um, it's a very Also special, didn't realize they were twins. Yeah. I thought it was like a... um, What's that? Lindsay, Lindsay Lohan?
1: Lohan. Yeah, parent trap situation. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. that
0: kind of situation. Uh, shout out Lindsay Lohan. One of the best <laughs> child performances ever in that yeah. movie. Um, And this film is like a really special product of the pandemic. I mean, the most horrific things happened during the pandemic, but these smaller more intimate movies that were made during the pandemic um, that were made on these like tight schedules in these like closed spaces. Like I think of Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy Mm, that we just would have probably have never gotten, you know, unless filmmakers were trying and artists were trying to do what they love still. And because they had that privilege, they made something really special that I don't think Siamo could have made outside of the pandemic which is really interesting so we'll probably look back at that in 10 years and like kind of study yeah that a time, lot of like era. smaller
1: scale productions. yeah which is interesting. so
0: everything's so grounded it's so careful in design it's both emotional and cathartic it's really exploring if people love all the strangers Andrew Hayes film yeah, from this year that's a great it's very similar yeah, in terms of like it being this like kind of surrealist meditation on the unresolvable you know, the unresolvable distance between a parent and a child. That's why I loved after son so much. Yeah. I have really young parents. And so the young parent theme of that movie really connected with me and like movies like the Florida project really connected with me in a similar way or, um, Minari in some cases. And so like, those are movies with like young parents just trying to like basically yeah. make it work. and, who probably aren't ready to have kids and those that delivers on a a level of tension. But Patima Mon is like for people who are very in touch with like their generations and their families. Like I don't really know my outside of my primary family, my family that well, my extended family. Mm -hmm. And so this Patima Mon I think is really, really a singular movie for people who are very aware of like generational cycles. Yeah. And I think it's uh, singular in that way. So it feels like a Claire Denis movie. It feels like an Ingmar Bergman or David Lynch or Jane Campion. All of like you know, those are Selene uh, Siyama's people, you know? So those are her inspirations. And so it makes sense that this is kind of one of her... This is her film post-Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Right. Because she wanted to make something very personal to her. Yeah, and I know a lot of up. people
1: were like, oh, well, I this was kind of a, a step down or something after Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah. Um, it, in terms of maybe the like the scope of of how just big portrait of a lady on fire feels. But mm-hmm. I disagree with that. And I, if you haven't seen Petite Maman, um, I am not recommending it as like, this is the best movie you'll, you'll ever see. But I think it's like worth giving a shot. And I love it. Yeah. yeah for personal reasons, I think.
0: Yes. Um, I think Tomboy is probably my favorite of hers, even though a portrait I recognize is the best.
1: You know, and that's why her filmography is so special. When you just said that, I was like, I guess Tomboy's like, Right next to Portrait and right next to Petite Maman for me too. She's made
0: three, four and a half slash five star movies, you know, like Tomboy, Petite Maman and Portrait. And so I think Tomboy, I was just so surprised by, and I'd never seen it before. I just watched it for the first time a week ago. I think I've seen it twice. It's only 80 minutes. It's a really easy watch. I mean, it's a complicated watch, but it's a really Mm -hmm. like, it flies by and it is, I, I was just wowed by it on like every level. I think in its screenplay and its performances, it's a radically human film and mm-hmm. it's so tender. It's got an incredible depiction of siblings that I'm not sure exists, but it's beautiful regardless. And it's got a real like so socio-
1: sibling story.
0: Yeah. I'm, yeah, it's one of the best sibling stories I've seen. It's a real like sociological look at identity and constructs on a spectrum it's exploring how children observe their environments and their identities and their constructs it's exploring something very similar to i think what she comes back to in girlhood mm-hmm. which is a more complicated film because that might might not be the movie she should be writing in the first place or directing mm-hmm. but that movie as a coming of age film felt very it was heartfelt while being fearless and then it also like it was something something about it felt like the filmmakers involved knew what it was like to be othered in both tomboy and girlhood. Mm-hmm. And I think Celine Siyama, like as a, uh, a queer woman in the film industry, obviously knows what that feels like. And so all of her movies have this kind of relatability in that way. Yeah. Of what it's like to be ostracized by people around you, especially dealing with class and, and gender. And so... I really admire those movies. Love Tomboy. Water Lilies is probably her, like, out of, if we're gonna rank her movies, maybe we could do that later, is my fifth favorite. But it's- yeah. Hi. Hello there. Sorry for interrupting.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for listening so far and hopefully you are enjoying (laughs) the episode so far. I feel like maybe if you made it this far... They got
0: it this far. They're having a good time. I mean,
1: let's hope. But to access our full conversation, you can go to the description of this episode to join our Patreon community, The Extra Credits Plus.
0: Yes. And for only $5 a month, you can get access to our full catalog of Patreon-exclusive episodes. Hope to see you there.